0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 252. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Last one before the uh, the big holiday week.
1: Yeah, excited. We got a, a, by the time people hear this, right, Monday off, short week. Uh, I get a lot done during this week. I don't know about you, Derek, right, but that kind of short and weak market, if the market doesn't pull on, you know, a 2018 on us, it's, it could actually be a very productive week. So looking forward to it. Yes, as
0: am I. Now, of course, Remember we did have a little bit of a, right. Was,
1: was, yeah. was that an obscure reference,
0: the 2018 nonsense? Well, <laughs> well, we should. All right. So for anyone who's not uh, immediately thinking, oh, I know what that is. 2018, the markets into the holiday sold off not quite 20%. It was almost an official bear market. And it was it was sharp. It was over really two weeks, and it traded down. I think we traded on Christmas Eve, the 24th that year, and it was, it was down, and that was sort of the Christmas Eve bottom.
1: Yeah, it was like down three and a half, three percent 3% the day before. 35 the day before was just like every day down, like, you know, multiples. And it was like, ugh, it was just the lack of uh, liquidity and interest and everything like that because 2018 started out a pretty strong year. First three quarters were great, and then and it just all kind of went down. We should maybe get a sound effect for 2018. Something. Sorry. Maybe something
0: I'm like that. Well, you know what's this punchy? Uh, a lot of people are blaming. So let me let me set this up and then we can have some discussion on it. Zero DTE options again. Now, Wednesday we had a sell-off. And if you were following the markets, the chart was sort of up and to the right on you know the intraday chart. And then you had this. This sell-off, and we actually sold off around, you know, greater than 1%. I think it was down 1.5% at one point. Yeah, one three, one four. come on. Yeah, it wasn't some, awful. Yeah, it wasn't awful. Uh, but, of course, the several, uh, both on Twitter and then on CNBC, I think some other outlets, blame zero DTE options. And what they blamed was they said that people were long a lot of puts, and they're, you know cheap out of the money puts when the market started to come down that causes the the market makers to sell stock and and sort of exacerbate the 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 sell off but not so fast as the CBOE contrary and I'm reading this uh, this is a bloomberg article titled zero day options shouldn't be blamed for sell offs cboe says and it says uh contrary to what some Wall Street analysts are saying a surge in trading of zero DTE expiry options shouldn't be blamed for Wednesday sell-off, says the CBOE. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, skipping down, they say uh, a number of analysts cited that so-called gamma hedging for acceleration slide. And that essentially means that when there are options on one side or another, and let's say the market's coming down and the, the negative deltas are increasing, the market makers have to sell more stock. And that's that's what the people who are blaming zero t DTE options are really blaming. And we can expand on this, Jay, once I kind of finish telling you what the SIBO did. And the SIBO says, but market makers were mostly long gamma throughout the sell-offs. CBOE data shows, meaning they were essentially going against the prevailing trend and actually buying stocks as they fell. Quote, this means, if anything, their hedging activity would have been a stabilizer rather than a primary driver of the sell-off, said Mandy Zhu, head of derivatives market intelligence at CBOE. All the headlines are, once again, much to do about nothing, end quote. Let's discuss, Jay. Any? What are your thoughts here?
1: Uh, my thoughts are like, hey, after up nine days in a row, and then you have a 1.5% sell-off, all of a sudden you got to you know, blame the usual suspect here, which is zero day options, I just find it ridiculous uh, that that, you know, people can take that blame, like options, gosh, like, I I just I think about that dynamic, like that is such the tail wagging the dog mentality, where the options market is impacting, you know, because of a, you know, a small group that is, you know, actively trading the options is actually impacting the overall market. Hey, how about it's just like what you always say. There were more sellers than buyers that day. And <laughs> Love yeah, it. some people took some profits. Like, this is not unusual. And I will tell you this. There's a lot of people who are waiting to take the market down because of, you know, look, we're approaching a technical top, uh, you know, approaching the 2020, I think it was 2021. It might have been like January, the first day of January, 2022, where we had that, the the previous all time high. Yeah, to have a down move as you're approaching a technical top is very, very normal. But to all of a sudden blame zero-day options, it just it seems lazy, Derek. I don't like it.
0: Well, yeah, and, and you know, the SIBO has has been pretty transparent about some of the data here. I'll just uh again, I'm not gonna read this whole thing. It they said uh options activity in the index that day was concentrated around puts at 4755 to 4765. And they were ones expiring Wednesday. Uh, but I think they said that uh, buying only exceeded selling by only about a thousand contracts, the exchange data shows. So it looks like, and, and nobody can see this graph, but it's sort of even the buying and selling. So like the SIBO has this data, they, they show it. So I, I'm in agreement with you. I think it's, an, it's, it's lazy to blame those for any little downturn in the market. And,
1: you know, I I think it's lazy. Lazy. I don't like it. Let's move on to people that actually know what they're talking about. I mean, actually, can I just say this comment, Derek? Like, we have a lot of products out there that people write articles about. I mean, how often do they actually get it right? Like, what would you say? One out of 20? I mean, I
0: saw one today. I won't even say what it was covering or anything, because then we have other disclaimers and all sorts of stuff. But I, I actually messaged you and I said, did an AI bot write this? It was so bad. I mean, it it, it just looked like they put no effort into
1: writing the article. Yeah. Yeah, no. So it just, it's just one of those things. Use your own judgment here. And, uh, you know, like, look, like journalists get paid to post, you know, interesting articles and get clicks. And the more clicks they get, just like as we've talked about, when things are fearful, you know, uh, uh, that's when, the, you know, the TVs get the better rankings. Like, it's just one of those things that ratings, I should say, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, you got to just look at it and be like, that doesn't make any sense or just use your own judgment here. Don't read Don't believe everything you read. Hey, once again, Derek, good advice. Don't believe everything on the internet. <laughs> Except stuff that I write and you write and we
0: publish. Oh, well, I believe, believe all of that. Yeah. Well, Including right, this podcast. Um, yeah, there you go. I will say <laughs> that, you know, there, we've used the term fragility in the markets. And I, and I think that's something you picked up, uh, God, Jay, it was probably a SIBO conference, the risk conference you went to several years ago, thinking back yeah. fragility. And it's just the idea that, that markets have a propensity these days to sort of have these little air, air pockets. Is that, is that a good way of sort of framing that?
1: Yeah. And like, you're not, you're not sure when something, uh, it's not, it's not, you know, bearish, it's just something kind of breaks, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, like what happens, like the breakdown we saw in, uh, you know, the minor banking crisis we had in March, like all of a sudden, like, uh, you know, when, uh, when, when bonds exceed, I went right to bonds. sorry. When bonds kind of hit a level that nobody thought stuff started to break, like that's the fragility. Like some things are, you know, we like things to operate in conjunction. It's like a little uh, environment in a terrarium and it's got its own ecosystem. And one of those pieces, uh, you know, doesn't behave that the other pieces we're counting on, then uh, there is this domino effect that things break. So the fragility concept uh, uh, is that it's not that things can be bad because there's plenty of people that can make money when things are bad. The fragility con- concept is that things are breaking and getting disjointed and have to have a have a reset on their levels.
0: The other thing that I've seen in that article and other quoted elsewhere is some Wall Street strategists are predicting a a Valmageddon 2.0. And Valmageddon 1 was dealt with, there were uh, exchange-traded note products where they were short VIX uh, options or VIX futures. I think in the case of of the one I'm thinking about, it was VIX futures. And Basically, that fund sort of blew up because the if the if the VIX went up by enough, the cost to cover the contract would wipe out the fund. And in that case, I mean, you essentially have I mean, it's kind of like selling naked calls, is you have unlimited risk, and you know, that that sort of blew up. That was Vaughn again one. So I don't know. I I think Valmageddon 2 caused by 0dte options. I don't know exactly what they're saying is going to happen. I don't I'm not I'm not quite sure and I think it's uh, I'll say it again. It's lazy. It's lazy to say it.
1: Yeah, it's by the way, talking about fragility, right? The the impact of and there were some of those ETNs, uh, exchange traded notes that, you know, had to shut down after that day. Like it was pretty bad, right? And and uh for those and the impact of the rest of the market was a uh, meh. It was a little bit of a technical blip. It didn't break anything in the you know in the bond market or the equity markets. The, the options market felt uh, the sting, but really didn't impact too much more. You know, it's one of the things. If I could come up on that, it um, the fund actually caused its own demise. I don't know if you remember this, right? So they were uh, they were short VIX futures because it was an inverse futures product. Right, that was kind of harvesting. Oh boy, harvesting Contango in mm-hmm. options futures, which we don't oh, I love it. have to go into too much. That that was. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I could we could do a whole thing on Contango, but essentially, it just means that the farther out prices cost more than current prices in VIX futures because there's always upside risk. So, and eventually, they go down, and it just took advantage of the fact that VIX futures eventually moved down towards the the spot VIX, and we've talked about that before. But the reason my point of this one is that the fund had so many redemptions because the market thought the fund might go out of business, right? So at the end of that day, the fund saw the redeems come in. And in the last hour, redeems is when um, a fund essentially is losing money and they have to close out their positions. Well, they short-squeezed themselves. They had to go rebuy the futures contracts. And they themselves, by buying the futures contracts that they were short, pushed up the price of the futures contract they were buying and they essentially squeezed themselves because of the fear that they might have to shut down well it ended up turning out that they absolutely did shut down and they were fine until the after hours right i think it was the like the the trades that were happening at 4:30 after the you know the regular markets had closed that actually caused that fund to have to shut down so again just an interesting market dynamics it's a good example of fragility there too where something Gets really out of whack, and there's always there's always a little uh, you know a little damage off to the side and caused a reset. Not every short futures uh, VIX fund went under, but a bunch did. I do remember that day too because we we were sort of messaging
0: back and forth, and my comment was the indicated price on this should be like zero. How is it still this? I, I was like this this is either the the easiest money anybody could ever make because you could have bought out of the money put options very very cheap. What I when I mean puts, I mean the, the fund essentially goes to zero. But and I don't remember the price of the fund at the start of the day, but you could have bought ones for like 10 cents that essentially were were no brainer. I'm like how is how is nobody doing this? And I'm like I I could be missing something or this is the easiest trade you could ever make. I never wound up doing it cuz it was only there for a little bit. But I'm like no no, this has no value. This fund is zero. It's gone. It's gone based upon the positions. So Anyway, maybe maybe we'll uh we'll we'll if we ever do write that next book, Jay, we'll put a we'll put that in there as, as some of our examples of crazy options. Sure, look,
1: it has to. You're talking about selling volatility, right? Volatility stuff. You gotta include that as squeezes matter. They do. Squeezes all right. Matter. I'm gonna really transition
0: us away from volatility oh, for a second. Right. We'll come back to it. But there is a little bit of volatility, Jay, in the container uh shipping area. I know you make fun of me as other people do for watching container shipping prices. There was a, hold on, hold on, hold on.
1: (laughs) I I think I've given you due credit from what you recognize in 2020, 2021 on that. Like that's, this is true. And, And, and it would be fair for you to not let me forget that I did tease you, but I have tried to rectify and, uh, and make it, uh, and give you credit for it. Well, you and weren't the, reason the worst why I, one. <laughs> no, I was not the worst one. <laughs> uh, Derek and I, our history goes back so far that Derek and I, and I think we just talked about this today. There's something you did 20 years ago when we were working together that I still mm-hmm. make fun of you for. So That's right. I think that you should. <laughs> you should. Yeah. And you should make fun <laughs> of me too. There you go. All, All right.
0: right. So let me get, let me get through this little segment here and then we can, we can talk about this. So, the world container index, and, and the world container index, you know that that includes all the routes: Shanghai to LA, Shanghai to Rotterdam in the Netherlands, Shanghai to New York, all, all sorts of shipping. That really spiked up. I mean, uh, forty foot, so a forty foot box. Think about if you ever see a rail car; uh, that's kind of the the box that they stack on the container ships. Uh, the price was, I don't know, about thirteen hundred, maybe thirteen fifty or so. And it spiked to roughly $1,700. Uh, and Shanghai to the UK, I saw one report uh, on CNBC that said container shipping went from under 2000 to 10000 per container box. And the reason why that is, is the, the, the Red Sea shipping lane, which is the Suez Canal. So if you think about, if you're shipping something, let's say Singapore, and you were going to ship something to Europe, to, to Rotterdam. Which is the Netherlands? You can go. There's a, a channel that's on the north east uh, corner of Africa between Africa and Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Well, there's some some issues there with some uh, some activity. I guess we could say some dust ups uh, in in that area, and so ships are having to maybe go around the southern uh, tip of Africa. And the difference is it's a 40% longer voyage to go around the Cape uh, Cape of Good Hope of Africa compared to the Suez Canal. So that's kind of what's going on. This could be a short-term blip. But Jay, I bring this up. I didn't really want to talk about the ins and outs of shipping containers. Well, I guess I'd love to do that, but I know you wouldn't let me. But the point I bring this up, it's kind of like, hey, if you're like really bearish and you're just trying to come up with things to to say, oh, this is the fly in the ointment. I think we used that term last week. This is something below the surface that could cause a little bit of inflation pressure if it were to last, Jay. And that's that's the reason why I bring it up.
1: Well, it's, it's kind of what kicked us off, you know, for the the most recent inflation flare-up that we're still kind of dealing with now. It was, it was one of the first things that happened, right? Like we started seeing, you know, just a, a difficulty of getting products uh uh to the you know shipping from one to another. So yeah, I'm with you Derek. I I don't know if this is a big problem. I think the US has dispatched, you know, some naval uh s- some na- right, so naval ships and they're going to uh you know try to put an end to the the little military activity that's going there. So we'll see. Yeah, it's it's kind of
0: interesting though how this in a, in a world economy definitely, you know, if you if it cost you $1,500 to buy a 40-foot container box and now it cost you ten grand, that is significant. And that's what happened, as you say, uh, to kick off the inflation with the supply side. You know, something else, Jay, that you and I talked about and we meant to talk about it on the show, I think over the last two weeks, was sort of the, the oil supply. You know, where how much yeah. supply of oil is there? And, Jay, I know you've, you've looked at the uh, drawdown and the, the SPR. Maybe kick us off on on this. I mean, is this something maybe that could are, is, are people missing this? I mean, everyone seems to be very bearish on oil. Like this is another fly in the ointment. Like if any energy prices were to spike, is this kind of one of those things too?
1: Well, I, you know the way the reason why I'm looking at it right. So when you look at the uh, uh, strategic reserve, right that that um, uh, we, we call it the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, right. When you look at the you know, kind of the uh, the barrels that are the, the volume that's there. Yeah, it's low. And, and I think it's been one of those things that, you know, when the U.S. starts to, you know, kind of backfill and refill uh, the SPR, it could be, um, you know, bullish for oil. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's gonna, uh, this is a different topic, Derek, but I was going to say, you know, I don't really follow gasoline prices any longer because I I've my main car that I drive now is electric and you and I've had that discussion a little bit before I'm saying that tongue in cheek for you, but uh, Mm -hmm. I do, you know, I do see that, you know, prices are dropping there and and could that be something that reverses like, this is one of those reasons. If you're, again, you're looking for a reason for inflation to kind of bubble back up oil, while it's not in the core, you know, inflation number, it is in the, you know, the, the headline number can start to, you know, if we start to, you know, refill the uh, uh, the SPR. It's something that could put pressure on it. I, you know, I had thought on this topic that you know maybe if we have a really bad winter in Europe, that you know, with the Ukraine crisis that's going on there, we'll start again. Like we'll start to see a spike in you know whether it was gas or oil um, because you know you still have the conflict going in Ukraine. You still got. Russia kind of controlling the oils and the their oil and the, the European nations banning using that. And so if they need a lot, but um, as a friend of mine who, uh, who who's a president of an international company that manufactures and his thought was, Jay, now like all the contracts that Europe needs in case it's a bad winter have all been kind of put into place. And so don't worry about the weather being the thing that spikes oil. Do you remember right when that conflict started, Derek, right? Oil Mm -hmm. spiked in fear that, oh my gosh, they won't have enough oil to heat heat homes, right? Or to to have enough energy. Remember they were turning off the electricity on national monuments, like all kinds of stuff to conserve energy. Um, And I was just thinking like, no one's talked about that in a year. Should it be something we're thinking about? Um, My friend who I would consider an expert on kind of international uh, supply chains uh, uh, told me, yeah, he th- thinks Europe's got a lot of that stuff kind of ironed out. Look, it's a, it's a data point of one, but, uh, you know, it was interesting. To, and I'm not surprised, by the way, right? You take all year to get take care of, uh, you know, potential disaster coming. So, you know, I think so back to why I brought up the oil thing. Like, I think that's another thing that uh, if the U.S. starts, you know, purchasing oil and at some point they're going to have to kind of refill uh, uh, the SPR then that might be slightly inflationary. Maybe they'll refill it, but they're politicians. So
0: if, if you want to get elected, you kind of want energy prices to be low.
1: And, you know, maybe that's in a non-election year, they would do it. Who makes that decision, right? I mean, is that, I mean, is that the elected officials that are making that? I guess it's an appointed... An appointed uh... Well, I, I found a CNN article because I, I was curious.
0: So why didn't we buy, you know, when oil went negative... And not like I, I don't know how fast you can do this, but you know why didn't why didn't they just load up on an oil and fill it to its ultimate capacity? Like it's, I, I don't think it's ever been really a capacity. I had a CNN article back in uh, from June of twenty three, and they they were fact checking. So I guess uh, President Trump or ex President Trump uh, was saying, you know, he had the idea to, to refill the the SPR when oil was really low and cnn said uh he proposed to buy 77 million barrels for the reserve in 2020 as oil prices cratered uh because of the pandemic but and i'm quoting from the cnn article here but the democratic controlled congress rejected the the funding that would have uh been needed to to pay for the purchase describing it as a subsidy so i guess you need congressional approval if if you're spending money you know the power of the purse so
1: a- anyway i interesting that's good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's good knowledge. I, I, I learned something today, Derek, there you go. I, yeah. And this is uh so I found that, but
0: yeah, I mean, at some point you'd figure you have to buy it and look, I'm going to, I'm saying this sarcastically, like the government usually picks the wrong time to do things. So it wouldn't surprise me if they wind up refilling it at, you know, at really high prices or
1: at <laughs> 120 bucks a,
0: a barrel. Yeah. yeah. Right. Now yeah. we'll do it now. Yeah. Now we're ready. Now, now, now we'll we need do to do refill it. it. We gotta we gotta buy it before it goes to three hundred, you know that type That's of. Exxon so will be psyched. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know the, the other thing too on on just oil is the rate counts are not at you know really highs. I didn't put this in in our our sheet this week to to look at, but between the SPR and just oil supplies, it's not at, Let's just say it's not at It's not making any highs, you know. So I think it's just something to watch. And it and the contrarian thing would be. Maybe to buy some energy. I don't know what energy company is going to do. You know, I'm not telling you to buy or sell those. But a contrarian thing right now would be, yeah, let me get long energy.
1: So, I don't know. I, I, we'll I will say, say this uh, about this. Right? I mean, um, you know, when you look at that kind of the chart that, uh, that you're mm-hmm. it is stabilized. Right? So, when you look at kind of the weekly, it's been fairly stable uh, since, you know, what? The end of May, June. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, look at June to today. It's about the same amount as in the SPR. So they clearly have kind of stopped the, you know, flooding of the market with, you know, US, you know, SPR oil. So it is stabilized. So maybe it's not a big deal. Like you said, maybe, maybe it's not. I liked how we watched it kind of go down. Yeah. But, you know, at some point, they'll refill. Maybe it'll be. Well, maybe there's no. Maybe
0: politically they don't need to do it right now because uh, U.S. regular all formulations gas price, according to Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, reached three point oh five three, and that doesn't really mean anything to you or our audience. But consider it was five five bucks on June thirteenth of twenty twenty two. So, you know, you're you're at a level nobody can see this chart but me. But you're at a level where we're starting. If it keeps going down, we're going to be below the you know, the 2021 May area. And really it was below three going all the way back to uh, 2014 and still, you know, it broke out in 2021. So I, I don't know. seems like, you know, and I realize there are taxes, there are different formulations depending upon where you live. That's the other thing. I don't think people realize how much is embedded in the price per gallon is taxes. Like, isn't California like a dollar? Something like that. Uh, Something crazy like that. Probably more. It's
1: probably worth looking it up before I just guess. but I had always thought more.
0: I I know where to find the list. Uh, I won't do it now because I do want to transition, Jay, to some other levels. And next week, the plan is for you and I to to do our prediction show. We're going to see where we went wrong in 23, make some predictions for 24, as well as some other content. I just thought it was interesting. You know, when you look at – this is from – T-K-E-R, uh, that is Sam Rowe, he had a screenshot on, on uh, X, formerly Twitter. I guess you have to say X, formerly Twitter. You can just say X now, I guess. But it's, Again. it's the range of targets that's really interesting. So JP Morgan's year-end 2024 target is 4,200. Okay, so that's, that's a negative year. Morgan Stanley's forty five hundred, and then you go uh, Deutsche Bank, BMO is fifty one hundred, Capital Economics is fifty five hundred, Goldman's forty seven hundred, Wells Fargo forty six twenty five. I'm not going to read them all. So there's definitely a range of outcomes, and but it, it, it sort of is interesting because I pulled up the consensus estimate, and I, I'm going to kind of lead the audience and and us down this path. You know, the consensus estimate for 2025 is 276. And you might say, well, why are you concerned about 2025 estimates, earnings estimates on the S&P 500, if you're talking about year-end 2024, so that's next year S&P 500 index targets. And the reason why I'm interested in 2025, because essentially, if you are making a prediction about what the market's going to be at the end of 24, you're sort of saying, I'm going to pick, if I know what my earnings estimate is for 25, then to get the level, I have to back into the multiple. And so I think Morgan Stanley's estimate is 266, and their, their year-end target is 4,500. So if you do the math and you say, well, uh, if the forward estimate is 266 and the year-end is 4,500, they're saying it's going to be trading at a 17 multiple. But on that same 266 J, if it trades at a 20 multiple, well, that means the target is 5320. You see where I'm going with this? Where it's kind of like this is why it's so hard. You got to pick the earnings, and then you got to pick what the market multiple is. Like, how much are pulling?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you're talking about here, like okay, to know where the market will end next year, 2024, you need to know what the market, the what companies will make through 2025. Right. So like, think of it. it's a year from now we want the prediction because that's all what we care about. Like what happens in one year from now, which I think you and I both sometimes go like investing is longer than a year at a time. People Right? Yeah. like, it's OK. But it's like we still we still do it. Like we still have to have this 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 discussion. So if I want to know where the year is going to end in 2024, I should know what the earnings are going to be on the S&P for 2025 to get the forward P.E. numbers. So like that. So right off the bat. I need to take, I don't even have 2023 numbers yet, right? And (laughs) now I have to know what 2025 numbers are going to look like. Okay, good luck. But okay, there's a trend, there's a range, fine. And then you're adding on that other complication of, well, what are people willing to pay for those earnings, i.e. the multiple, to get there. So yeah, like it's, of course it's hard, Derek. Right. And which is kind of why like we only do it in jest and we don't make our investment decisions based on the accuracy for our ability to project things like 2025 corporate earnings.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll give you another example. And I found this, uh, this picture from Barron's and it's not the current Barron's it's the one in December of 2022. And it was the year end, where the, where the analysts are making their year-end 2023 predictions and targets. So that's essentially right now. Like, what's, what's the market going to be at the end of next week? Well, what's fascinating is, I'll give you two examples. Ed Yardini, Yardini Research, had a uh, 2023 S&P 500 EPS. His estimate was 225. Uh, Gaurav Malik from uh, State Street Global Advisors also had 225. Now, you might say, that's not really interesting. But what is interesting is Yardini's year on target for this year was 4,800. Malik's uh, target was 4,000. So uh, it's not a forward PE because I don't have their estimates for 24, which is what the forward PE would be right now. But really, uh, the the only difference is what the trailing PE was going to be. I mean, that's it. These gentlemen had each the same exact same EPS targets, but eight hundred different point, eight hundred points
1: difference in their year-end target. So it's yeah, all multiple. I, you know, a, I'm, I'm, yeah, and I'm looking at kind of the difference between their two predictions, right? And the one that's, there's two ones that are pretty, pretty stark to me. The first one is the Fed funds rate, right? The one with the lower Fed funds rate by only fifty bips. You know, gave a higher number, like okay, higher multiple with lower Fed funds rate. That's that's not surprising. But the big number is the the growth, right? The real GDP growth, right? The one who had the lower projections said only 0.4%. The other one said 2.0%. So I think there, there's one of those things that gives you an idea of what drives a multiple um, when it when it comes to these numbers. It's growth helps, right? Growth creates the the higher expectations. You're willing to pay more for growth. And that's why I think that, you know, one of the the, the reasons that the Yardeni uh, projection of 4,800 was so much higher than the Malik one at 4,000, right? Like growth matters, right? Growth is good for markets, helps with the earnings, even though they have the same earnings number, which is very interesting, right? It's kind of it, like the, no, it the, is. the rate of momentum, right? Which one had the momentum. The other thing I'll I'll say is, and we, we
0: talk to the people, you know, different people at state street all the time is I know that um, I, I can't recall it right now, but you know, analysts read, revise their estimates as new information comes in. So it's kind of like, imagine if you and I, instead of being in the investment world, we were on CBS football Sunday or Fox football, you know, the pregame show. And you're like, oh, I think this team's going to win by this much. And then new information comes in, you find out the quarterback was, is out. You're like, well, you know, do it. I have new information. I, I have to change my outlook now. You know, like, that happens all the time. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think it's a good exercise, but it's a little silly to look at all these predictions. Even though we're going to do it next week, it's, it's really you know, and I'll, don't you think too that when you have a bad year, your predictions are much more bearish than when you have a good year. Like think about at the end of twenty twenty one.
1: Yeah, recency. Recency for twenty twenty two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah um, recency bias, of course.
0: Of course. The other thing that, um, and I. Yeah, so Sam Rowe on uh, on X is uh, he puts out some interesting stuff. He also had a distribution of S and P five hundred annual total returns nineteen fifty seven to two thousand twenty three. You and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that like very few times does the market actually get the average return that's been the average o- over a long period of time. And Jay, what his chart says is the market is most often up 15 to 30%. Second most often is 0 to 15%. Uh that's interesting to me. Like markets up a lot a lot
1: of times. <laughs> I mean it's one of those things we talk about it all the time that markets, you know, tend to go up, right? And in this this chart here with the I guess it's uh 66 years, 67 years of mm-hmm. history twenty three times, which turns out to be about thirty five percent thirty five percent of the time the market is up between fifteen to thirty percent in the calendar year, so one yeah. out of three times it's going to be up what we just saw i mean that's by the way, then ten more times it's up you know thirty to forty five so like if you were to think about that, Derek, that means half the time in this study right I just said sixty six times thirty three times the market is up fifteen percent or more it's one of those things that like you, you you, want to position yourself to capture the things that, you know, are generally the trend, right? Um, the, the next follow-up question is, well, how about, you know, just, you know, being down the, the numbers on this period are what's that? 15 times out of 66 was the S and P negative, right? So 15 divided by 66 is about a quarter of the time the market is down. So three quarters of the time, the market is, is, is up like, that's a good thing. it's why we like to stay invested like that is that is a trend. I don't say it's easy, but I'm just saying it's like gosh, lean towards the thing that happens more often than not especially when it comes to investing. It's one of those things that is that I like to say is just it's over time uh, the, the markets tend to go up and you're gonna participate in that And like if you told if I told you half the time the market's up 15% or more you'd be like, well of course I always want to have exposure to the market then. Right. I always want to have some level of exposure. Now, those really bad years. This is why we hedge for people that don't have, you know, a longer time period. Right. I had a a client of ours who's going to probably retire in the next two years. And he asked questions about being more aggressive. And I was like, look, if you had 10 more years to go before retirement, totally behind that idea. But you got two. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years. I feel better about what's going to happen over the next 10 versus the next two, which is strange. Like, normally you add time, predictability is less. But I think when it comes to things like the market history, history has told us that give it more time, you're going to be up more often than not. And, you know, time is actually your friend. So, yeah, I think this is a great great data point. And just a reminder again to everybody that, like, look, while nobody thought we'd have a plus 20% year this year. It happens, and guess what? It happens more often than it doesn't. You look at the, again, the audience can't see this,
0: but you know, three times in 66 years, the market was minus 15% to minus 30%. One time, 2008, uh, minus 30 to minus 45%. You brought up hedging. I mean, this is sort of like, imagine if you're hedged and you can sort of X out both of those column stacks. You know, if you, if you kept an annual loss to, somewhere around 10%, and you don't take those really, really bad years, then it's, it, it, it's, it gets even more appealing, is my point, of being, you know, you buy, but you hedge. We don't know what the market's going to do. But that's the idea. You take away those really, really b- big numbers. And then half the time, as you said, since 1957, the market's up 15% or more. That's pretty significant, Jay.
1: Pretty significant. Yet, I don't think we're going to have a lot of people predicting 15% or more in our predictions when we do them next week, which now I'm like, maybe I want my predictions back. Well, Ed
0: Yardini, he says it's going to 6,000 by the end of 2025. So what would that be uh, based based upon the close today? That's uh, 26% over the next two years, is what Yardini is
1: saying. Okay. So, so that's... Feels like the numbers we're talking about here support that. Yeah. yeah. Do you
0: remember the uh oh, I, I, I didn't pull it up for this this show, but at the end of the decade, so there were there was some data. There was somebody who showed a chart, and it was it was basically saying when the previous 20 years annual return was was X, and then they showed the scatter plot. And the analysts at the time were only predicting whatever they were predicting over the next 10 years. And the guy showed like, if that actually came true, it would be such an outlier to the downside. Meaning normally you get much better returns after you have a 20 year period. Remember 20 year period prior to to, uh, start of 2020 was you had 2008 in there, you had 9-11, you had the tech crash. You know, so I, it's. I'll try and find it again, Jay, and we can maybe talk about
1: it more. I, I don't know if you remember that it was the scatter. Oh part, yeah, but yeah I, to- I totally remember yeah. it. Right, And it kind of predicts based on you know the average return over the next ten years based on what has happened. So yeah, totally remember it. It was interesting data. I would say like feel like this year feels like an outlier from the last time we saw that data, right? Yeah, like it was coming yeah. in lower and lower. So we'll see. You know, like all data, it's one data point. I want to talk about. Uh,
0: Christmas movies in our recommendations, and maybe you have a different one. But before that, I want to bring up something. Our, our, uh, I've cited him a lot. Uh, oh, what is his name? Why can't I remember his name? He he has the twelve year twelve year forward um, graph. J.
1: It's not Why Schiller. Can- it's um, yes. I know we've talked about him before. Now I'm drawing a blank as well.
0: Uh, I I will find it. I will find it. But I, I'll start with just what, what he was showing. You, remember the, you, you might have remembered the, the dot plots came out. And for anyone who doesn't know what the dot plots are, uh, John Hussman, Jay, is the, is
1: the yeah, gentleman. Jay was guy. Hussman. Very good.
0: Yeah. So Hussman, um, the dot plots came out. And basically, the dot plots say, they asked the Fed members, what do you think inflation is going to be next year? What do you think the end of year Fed funds rate is going to be? And all this. And people made a big deal about it because they said, ooh, you know, look at those dot plots. Look at what they think the Fed funds rate is going to be, and the median of the dot plots. Now, I will say that the dot plots I think started with the Bernanke Fed, uh, the the era of new transparency, and they've continued since. And Hunt, uh, Hussman had a, a tweet, or on X, an X, I guess you can say, basically saying the <laughs> the correlation between what the Fed dot plots are. And then one year later, what whatever the metrics wind up being is like zero point nine percent, meaning like they're, wow. worthless.
1: Yeah. they're worthless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Writing yeah.
0: articles about this, like they they their predictions are awful. In fact, Bullard, who has since retired from the Fed, at one point didn't put his dot in because he said we're awful at this. Like, why are we even? What are we doing here? So <laughs> anyway, I thought I'd bring that up, well, and I uh, he no, actually took look, the time it, to run it, the correlation.
1: It, it, so. It moved the market this month, right? The dot plots showed a drop in rates and the market ate it up. It did, but you know, pe- people shouldn't look at those dot plots.
0: All all you need to do is go and it's on the Fed site. Go look at like twenty fourteen, what they thought the Fed funds rate was going to be in twenty fifteen and how wrong they really were. You know, they were like, Oh, it's gonna be three and a half, four percent. No, it was next to zero. It was almost zero. So
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, that, that's okay. how you do it. All right. So um, do we have anything else on the uh on the agenda here? I guess we're done. Are we really done? I
1: mean, we usually touch based on volatility, but I think we're good. Like same story as last week. Continues to show low volatility for a little for for a little longer, which I'm not surprised based on this week, even with that weirdness on Wednesday that you know the zero DTs got blamed for. Yeah. VIX tells a thirteen handle vix a little elevated. It did, I don't you know what's interesting, did. though? It didn't spike. No, like it you did think, not. You know, it didn't do anything on Wednesday. Like, so, if it was options-based, it would have spiked the VIX. People it would have. Not people. Whoever wrote that. You would have seen it. And the whole point of Zero TD, that's what the VIX reflects, options. So, all right. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Now I'm back. Now I don't like it. Easy, I don't like it. I know. I know you don't like it. Uh, the VIX and
0: the VVIX, the only thing I'll say about it is, we run a, a quantitative strategy and, and we look at 19 different uh, what's it called volatility or option-based triggers. And so one of the ones we've been watching is we look for this, this compression and then uncompression, I'll call it, uh, let's say the, the VIX and the VVIX. And it's really, you're looking at standard deviations and things like that. And it, it was like just flatlined it it was nothing and we have seen that start to uh to jump up a little bit and the reason i bring that up and and jay you can talk about this a little bit briefly is sometimes when it goes from being you know really compressed to starts to unwind it could be forecasting maybe a, a change in the volatility uh but the other things we watch really aren't pointing to that yet i don't know if you want to comment on that real quick and then we can move to uh some yeah, of I mean, the they,
1: we're not we're not there yet. It's always like you have a trigger and there's a level for the trigger, so don't jump the trigger. But if that trigger was to kind of come through, it might signal maybe a slowdown on this, you know, pretty quick, uh, uh, you know, rise in uh, in price on the in the market, right? So the quick move up. So maybe it'll take a little breather, maybe a little retracement. But so far, nothing. You know, it hasn't happened yet, but we're watching it to approach. Because even when you look like, you know, a day like today, like this is Friday, uh, uh, before Christmas, like, yeah, the market was up a little bit. Like, that's okay. That could continue to kind of trend sideways. There's nothing saying that, you know, that's going to stop you. But, you know, if that trigger gets there, then eh, may- maybe it shows a slowdown or a slight turn. But there's nothing, there's no red, red lights going off at this point for that for that for uh, that one way of assessing what's coming. Agreed. All right. Let's do, uh, let's do some, some, should we,
0: can we talk about, uh, Christmas movies? I love Christmas movies. All right. Well,
1: I got to throw Die Hard in there. No, even Bruce Willis said it's not. Nope. He, I watched his interview. He was on stage. Somebody asked him and he said, for the last and final time, I will tell you Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I completely disagree. It is a Christmas movie. Willis. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That's right. I'm going to read your book and tell you that you're wrong. Although there's nothing wrong in the broken pie chart. No, no. It's Wednesday.
0: Listen, if you want to watch an
1: action movie that takes place during Christmas, great. It's an action movie.
0: I will say that I remember when Die Hard came out, it was 19, I think it was 1988. It was the summer. So you think about that. It gets released in the summer, but it happens to take place around Christmas. I remember seeing it in the movies. I
1: saw it the movie theater too. I think that underscores my point. Not a Christmas movie. All right. The Castaway, not a Christmas movie either. Although no. it does have the Christmas scene. <laughs> not a Christmas movie. All right. No. That's All a right. whole, that's this is a whole segment. Movies that take no, place it's not, it, it's that are not, not a Christmas not. movie. All right. Well, do uh, you have listen, any recommendations? Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation is a staple for me. You know, what's a recent ad for me is for Christmases, if you haven't watched that. Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn. You know, like, so we have our core five that we watch every year. That one's made it into the number six slot. It's, it's hilarious. If you haven't seen Four Christmases.
0: I have. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty funny one where they, I think the premise was they, they tell their families they cannot go to their respective houses and then they go to like, you know, Fiji or
1: something like that for Christmas. And well, they were going to go, right? And then their plane gets canceled and they get caught on the news standing at the ticket line. Going oh, that's to Fiji, right. right? And then that's they have right. to like go to the, each one of their parents Christmas. Yes. Very funny. Very funny. All right. What about Love Actually? You got that one's not on my list. I know that is definitely a Christmas movie though, but that one doesn't make my list. My, my must haves. All right. All right.
0: Um, all any right. Any, any other recommendations? I can't watch Elf. Can I tell you why I can't watch Elf. You might remember when I was traveling every single week back in the, uh, uh, the the TD Ameritrade days, they used to show a movie on the plane. You know, this is a while ago. And every time they would say, we have a special treat for everybody. We're going to show the movie Elf. It was on every damn flight, Jay. And, you know, this is sort of before you had the iPods and the the, the you know, so... I watched it a bunch of times. I can't watch it anymore. I can't do it.
1: All right. Elf's, Elf's on my list. Uh, of course, Christmas Story. Home Alone is on there. And yeah. then one that I like to get in, but the rest of the family doesn't like is Scrooged. Scrooge. So that mm. one in the movie theater as well. Some great one-liners in there in Scrooged, if you haven't seen a Bill Murray movie. You know, one, It's a Wonderful Life is,
0: is sort of a business movie because it, it deals with uh, a run on the bank. There you well, go. That's, run on the bank. See, there we're, we're going
1: to end with a run on a bank.
0: Well, I, I guess we got to end somewhere, and might as well be there. Um, all right, Jay. The, I think we're, we'll call it good for this uh, this holiday edition. Or I, this might be out a little early too, because the uh, the uh, the person who uh, produces this, we never edit it, but it is sort of you know our levels are evened out and. Um, he's i think going to do it a little bit early so it might be out sooner than than uh, the normal sunday but we'll see we'll see all right jay that's it we'll be back next week with predictions and uh we'll see how we did in 2023 by the way i will let the audience know you are outdoing my uh, the the predictions from 23 so far uh mine not Woo-hoo! so good I'll yours much better so there you go jay all right everyone hope you had a good holiday talk to you soon see ya